and welcome to Hypot Enthuse, the podcast of the Faculty of Mathematical and Physical Sciences at UCL, or as we like to call it, MAPS. I'm your host Malcolm and I'm here with my co-host Maimana. Hi everyone! And we are here today with Dr. Sebastian Gros, who is a research associate in the Department of Earth Sciences. Sebastian, thank you for joining us today. Hello, nice to be here. I'm happy to be here. So let's give the jargon-filled summary of your work from the website. Sebastian's research focuses mainly on the evolution of Crocodilomorpha, specifically the 200 million year old Crocodilomorph group of Neosuchia, uh, which contains all modern species of crocodile, alligator and the gariel. So first things first, why on earth are you talking about alligators and crocodiles in earth sciences when I assumed earth sciences is all just looking at rocks? So basically by accident, I did my undergrad degrees in uh, biosciences, zoology and uh, evolutionary biology. And then uh, I sort of did my PhD in paleontology. And for some reason, because paleontology sort of straddles the in-between between geology and biology, we usually end up with the earth scientists. But it makes for a fun uh, work environment because I work with a lot of earth scientists and I have absolutely no clue what any of them are talking about. So <laughs> brilliant. <laughs> the dream. <laughs> I think when we talk about paleontology, certainly my generation, we all just think of Ross from Friends being a, a grown man who's a bit too interested in dinosaurs. But there's not too much talk about what the actual work is beyond a kind of Jurassic Park. Oh, I assume you found a bug trapped in amber somewhere kind of thing. So can you talk about some of the methods you'd use to actually do that research and look into those animals? So there are quite a few different ones. So I sort of start at the very fundamental level. And the most fundamental thing for me is if I want to reconstruct the sort of evolutionary history of a group is the first thing I want to know is how are these creatures related? So because I can't really talk about how certain features evolved if I don't know how the different species of a group are actually related. So uh, one of my biggest tasks or one of the biggest tasks of my PhD and that I've been working on now as well was to do what we call a phylogeny. And a phylogeny is just a really fancy word that we use for a tree that shows the relationships between different species. So almost like in, like you know when you see a genealogy of like humans, it's the same thing, but for animals or plants mm -hmm. or so on. So um, yeah, that's, that's sort of the standard basic method that I do. And then after having constructed that sort of that so-called phylogeny, I then go in and try to apply different analysis to it. So things like I want to see when the different species evolved. So I apply what I like to call dating methods. So I'm currently working on a paper that literally is called how to date a crocodile, because that's quite <laughs> important in my opinion. <laughs> and um, thankfully, my co-authors let me keep that title. I'm so happy they did. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, so the dating guide for crocodiles will be out soon, hopefully. And um, yeah, and then looking at stuff like biogeographic analysis to so seeing, OK, now we know how they're related. Now we know when they evolved now we want to know where they evolved so how did they migrate from different land masses to other land masses how did they sort of evolve throughout the history and once you've done that you can then start looking at okay so how did these different anatomical features evolve what happened to them throughout the different time periods and so on and so on that sounds super interesting i'm i guess i'm wondering where where did your fascination for for crocodiles begin because it sounds like now you're looking in a lot of depth i love the sound of the dating guide by the way but um yeah i just wonder if there was kind of a a natural pathway from biosciences towards honing in on crocodiles or that is something you always um admired at museums do you remember any particular um sort of standout moments where you thought this is the thing i want to research 
So, fun fact, everyone expects this to be like a run of these clips. I was like, oh, I always love crocodiles. I always wanted to work on crocodiles. <laughs> when is literally complete and sheer accident. So oh, wow. um, okay. I have, I am the kind of person, I love spiders. I love insects. I love everything that has more than four legs or no legs. I always found that vertebrates, everything with a backbone and four legs, they're really, really boring. And I refuse to learn the anatomy. I refuse to learn the biology for <laughs> both my bachelor's and my master's degrees. And uh, nice. then I sort of slipped into my PhD program, which is which was the London PTP. And for the PhD program, basically, you get into the program, you get funding, and then you get to decide what project you want to do. So I had this huge choice of different projects. And I've always really liked paleontology. And so I talked to uh, Paul Upchurch, who was my PhD supervisor, is now my PI at the department. And he, and he and I just got to talking about this project he was offering about crocodiles. And I was like, wow, this sounds really cool. And like all these methods sound really interesting. And I really think he sounds like a really great guy to work with. So I think I just want to work with him. And so, yeah, literally by pure chance, I started working on crocodiles and actually find out that they're really, really rad. So I love insects and spiders a lot still, but I'll make an exception for crocodiles. They're, they're kind of cool. I'm really happy to hear that because there are so many stories that we hear of, you know, some scientist who was like, well, I was five years old when I discovered my first dinosaur fossil. Yeah. And I knew I was going to work in dinosaurs from that day onwards. And for those people who kind of, especially who get to say, 17, 18, and are like, I don't have one specific passion. You know, I, mm. I'm not sure if that one thing I want to work in. It's really nice to know that these things can can crop up later in your career and still be so central to it. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I always like to tell people that I did my bachelor's thesis on the population dynamics of threatened plant species in a German nature reserve, oh. which has absolutely nothing to do with what I did in my PhD. So, um, yeah, <laughs> there you go. So far. <laughs> so Somebody far, else is going to come and do a PhD and connect those two things. I that is true, you. yes. <laughs> We are doing a podcast about somebody who works uh, looking at the evolution of modern species of crocodile and alligator and similar animals. Uh, I think the internet would be very cross if we didn't ask uh, one very simple, basic question. What the hell is the difference between a crocodile and an alligator? <laughs> oh, my God. So there are a lot of... But at least you didn't ask me the question that one drunk guy asked me at one of the museum late nights well, a couple of years ago, which was, so... If an alligator fights a crocodile, who wins? So, you know, that's, that's at oh, least something. Oh, wow. Okay, we're vaguely, <laughs> vaguely better than that. Yeah, that was wild. Um, I, I, would, I would add there is a part two to this question that may make it not <laughs> oh. seem quite so dumb. But let's get part one out of the way first. All right. Okay. So the, one of the biggest differences is simply anatomically. So crocodiles and alligators are actually quite separate lineages. They diverged around oh, at least 80 million years ago, which is basically, to put it into perspective, it's when the dinosaurs were still around. So by the time we had the last species of dinosaurs around, alligators and crocodiles were already very distinct lineages. And there are tons of extinct species from both groups. And so crocodiles can, well, the easiest way to sort of distinguish them is by looking at the head. So um, alligators usually have quite round heads and quite round, broad snouts, whereas crocodile snouts are much sort of um, narrower and a bit longer usually as well. And then you have the arrangement of the teeth as well. So quite often you get crocodiles that have the one of the, the fourth tooth on the lower jaw sort of sticks out upwards, which alligators don't have. And the alligators, all the um, upper teeth sort of overlap the lower teeth and things like that. But also a very simple way of trying to find out if you have an alligator or crocodile is simply looking at where it comes from. 
So if you have something that comes from, let's say, Africa or Southeast Asia, it's a crocodile because all alligators, well, except for one species that lives in China, are restricted to North America and South America. So yeah, if you find a crocodile from Africa, or a crocodilian from Africa, it's probably a crocodile, not an alligator, because alligators just don't exist there anymore. I think the thing is that, you know, everybody knows crocodiles and alligators. Everybody is aware of them as creatures, but the two tend to get kind of blurred together a lot in popular culture, and there are probably, you know, cartoon representations claiming to be an alligator that looks more like a crocodile in reverse. You also mention in your work that you work a lot on the Gariel. Is the Gariel a third completely different kind of species? Is it in some way interrelated? Is it like a common ancestor to the, the two? What's the, the position of a Gariel in that? What I want to think of as the alligator-crocodile spectrum, which is probably a completely invalid way of looking at it. <laughs> yes, yeah, so it's basically the third big family in there. So um, if you talk about relationship groups, we say that alligators are family, crocodiles are family, and the gharial is its own very separate family that's sort of separated mm. even earlier from alligators and crocodiles. And so probably something around 100 million years ago or so. So once again far still during like the heyday of the dinosaurs more or less so um and has that really unique sort of snout shape of this extremely long and thin snout so uh, my best friend likes to call them pincer crocs which i which i would (laughs) still have to put in a paper somewhere because it's great but uh yeah so they're, they're basically quite separate so they're their own separate entity almost you have this one common ancestor that was around, yeah, 100, 100, somewhere between 100 and 150 million years ago. And from there on, it sort of split off into these three separate groups. There's lots of extinct species on the way that we don't have anymore, sadly. Oh, sad. Uh, talking about kind of the, the ways that these different species relate to each other, you published a paper, um, I think just last year, which you were the first author of, um, which I would love if you could kind of explain in a bit more detail, but it was called The Phylogenetic Relationships of Neosuchian Crocodiles and Their Implications for Convergent Evolution of the Longerostrine Crocodiles. The main thing that I was interested in was the Neosuchian part, because that sounds a little bit like a a sort of timing um, word, if I'm guessing that correctly. Do you think you could tell us how that sort of relates to the broader themes that you're looking at in evolution? Yeah, happily. So that paper was basically, well, the amalgamation of a couple of years of work and sort of the the brunt of the work that I did during my PhD. So if we go back to a bit earlier, where I said when, oh, well, when, when trying to understand the evolution of a species, you first have to look at the relationships. That was basically what I was trying to do. So I looked at this crocodile group called the Neozuchia, and I tried to reconstruct their relationships using a couple of new and different methods and then using that tree that I got out of it, so the tree that shows the relationships to um, look at some the evolution of some features. And sort of the, so to sort of clarify what Neozuchia is, first of all. So Neozuchia yeah. is that sort of one big overgroup that includes the alligators and the crocodiles and the gharials, plus a couple mm-hmm. of extinct groups that we don't have anymore. So these extinct groups are called stuff like Diplocynodons and Goniopholidids and Tetezuchians. These are all sort of really weird and fun-looking extinct crocodiles that we don't really have anymore. And the group was about 200 million years old, so they started to emerge at about the same time as the dinosaurs did. So crocodiles are not dinosaurs, they're sort of a sister group to dinosaurs, but they're not part of dinosaurs, and they evolved at the same time. And so, yeah, Nuzukia sort of describes that 
group that sort of arose about 200 million years ago and includes a couple of very fun crocodiles. And um, yeah, I wanted to look at the relationships between the different species. There's something like 200, 300 of species of those. And to put that in perspective, wow. we have something like 25 or so living Nizukians and the rest is all extinct. So there's, there's this huge diversity of different species that we don't really know about anymore. There's been a, quite a bit of work done in their biology, but there hasn't really been a sort of synthesis of the previous work, trying to reconstruct the relationships between the different species using some more novel methods. And that's basically what I spent my PhD, well, the bigger part of my PhD doing was that I went and been to lots of different museums. I looked at lots of different fossils and then I sort of looked at the anatomy. And in paleontology, we use anatomy to reconstruct relationships between species because uh, unlike all my biology students in the biology modules that I teach, they'll go, oh yeah, we just use DNA. And I'm like, we don't have DNA. We need to use something else. Oh. I'm very disappointed. So yeah, I spent a lot of time staring at, how, how do I like to say? I spent a lot of time staring at dead things in dark cellars. So um, that's in dark basements. That's, that's my Amaris paleontologist. And so yeah, basically, and I did that and I spent a lot of time looking, sort of collecting these anatomical features and then running lots of different analyses. So we talked about the gharial earlier, and the gharial has, as I said, this extremely long and thin snout with these very thin pointed teeth, which is an adaptation for fish catching. So it, uh, it, evolved, oh. and, yeah, it evolved because um, you can catch fish much more easily. It's like dolphin snouts almost, you can say. It's, oh my um, God, for Donald Crocodile. Sort of so the cool. same principle. And for in this sort of snout shape, occurred multiple different times so it evolved more than once in the in this without Nizukian. so we have a couple of uh crocodiles that are like 200 million years old that have that same exact snout shape but they're not necessarily related to the gharial that we have nowadays and so i wanted to sort of look at the evolutionary mechanisms by which that snout shape evolved and that's what i did with the tree so i found out that it evolved at least three separate times for example, throughout the history of Nizukians and sort of looked at the very specific anatomical changes required for the evolution of that shape. That's so interesting, because you would really assume that if the shape was similar, that they would be related, right? So that's kind of like you almost debunked. <laughs> you think so, there. yeah. And that's the big problem that we face in paleontology, really. It's, um, it's the fact that since we base all our sort of trees and relationship trees on anatomy, we sort of make that mm. assumption that if things look similar, it means they are related, but a lot of times they aren't, which is a feature of evolution. Because a lot of times something that we call parallel evolution occurs, which means things look the same, but they don't actually have a common ancestor because of it. So it's really difficult trying to sort of tease that apart. And that was one of the things that I tried to do in that paper and try to find better methods for doing so. I'm sure I stumbled across something a few weeks ago that was telling me that there are I think five different occasions where nature has evolved crabs or crab-like beings from completely Ooh. different approaches. Cause some like carcinification. It's like nature keeps trying to make crabs happen <laughs> in different areas. Is it the same kind of thing? Like just independently, nature has evolved this. Absolutely. Yeah, that's um, exactly that thing. <laughs> same principle. But I think it was interesting that you made a comparison to dolphins there. I know dolphins have been seen to engage in behaviour that in human society would be considered quite, would be looked down on quite poorly. I think there's cases of dolphin rape or things like that happening, but dolphins are painted as these quite friendly, cuddly animals that people go and swim with. On the other side, crocodiles definitely have a bad reputation. Do you think that's a fair rep, or do you think they've got a, a, an unjustly bad reputation? Yes and no. 
If that makes sense, as in, I have a very healthy respect for crocodiles and alligators and co. Because yeah, if you've ever seen them in action, my god, yeah, stay, don't, don't go too close, <laughs> don't, don't pet the crocodile, don't. <laughs> but it's so cute. He had it here first. <laughs> to be fair, like caimans are adorable. I got to hold like a baby alligator at the crocodile zoo during like uh, a conference oh, wow. at one point. It was the best moment in my life because my god, are they cute? But yeah, they're not that cute any longer when they're you know a couple meters long and try to eat you so there's that mm -hmm. but um i think to be fair a lot of that reputation always comes from like the usual clash between like human inhabitation and sort of encroaching on the natural habitat of crocodiles and there has to be a solution where both parties are satisfied if that makes sense so like give the crocodiles their space but also like have your own space and be clear about it so yeah i think so that their reputation is sort of justified in that yes there are definitely deaths annually that occur from crocodile bites simply and without no provocation whatsoever but they're also not like okay. cold-blooded killers going out of their way to hunt humans specifically most of these deaths happen because humans are in a crocodile's habitat and behave in a way that makes them look like prey animals so a lot of deaths so not to get too dark but a lot of deaths the recent most recent statistic that i saw was it's usually young kids or young men because they're exactly the right oh, size no. and they look like you know a prey animal paddling in water and that's why they get oh, caught and so eaten, so well, that sounds like a mistake on the crocodile's part. <laughs> Just to put it, put it kind of kindly, because really, if something's floating about that looks like a prey, what else is it going to do? Yeah, yeah, pretty much. That's the thing. Sorry, maybe that's a really harsh thing to say. Oh, no, coming back to a, a lighter note, maybe. Um, you mentioned before that there are some really funny kind of cool looking species that have gone extinct have you got any any standouts <laughs> oh always so my absolute favorite that i tell all my students about as well is a crocodile called simosuchus and the actual title of the paper that was published that first described simosuchus was a pug-nosed crocodile and it literally is called because it looks like a pug so like the dog basically it has this what? really like short little snout this white short it looks like it ran in, in, into a wall and didn't stop smiling since it's absolutely adorable <laughs> and the thing is like and the best thing is it ate plants so it wasn't even like a predator it just ate plants it was a herbivorous crocodile so oh, um, yeah it's the cutest thing and i'm so mad it doesn't exist anymore <laughs> I know. You mentioned earlier not having any DNA for the uh, of these creatures. Like, how fantastical is the Jurassic Park idea of, you know, we'd find a, a mosquito with some DNA in the blood trapped in amber and would therefore be able to recreate these long-dead uh, species of crocodile? Fairly fantastical, I would say. So there are recent advances. Um, so there's a thing that we call ancient DNA. And ancient DNA basically means DNA that is extracted from dead or, or even fossilized sometimes animals. So most of it is quite recent. So stuff like, you know, frozen mammoths and things like that. So that we have like a mammoth genome. But um, there are events. And I went to a talk at a conference a couple of years ago where somebody talked about trying to like sort of extract proteins, protein structures and molecular structures of proteins from dinosaur fossils. So there are very slowly sort of advances being made towards that direction. But the problem with DNA is even if you had something that's say in a mosquito, it degrades over time. So during my mm -hmm. master's, I did DNA analysis. I was working with um, harvest men, also known as daddy long legs. And I was extracting DNA from some species that had been in the freezer for, I don't know, 10, 15 years, and even those 
I had a lot of trouble already getting good reads on that DNA and getting good DNA. Now, if you think about something that's not 10 years old, but, you know, 66 million years old, there's so much degradation yeah. going on in there that it probably would be quite hard. So not quite as easy, unfortunately, as in the movie or about the books. But <laughs> um, just I was going to add, uh, I know... Um... A PhD from STS, who I worked with, and I think my man and I as well, had a similar project mm. of trying to extract some DNA from Jeremy Bentham. And they had the oh, similar yeah. kind of issue. Not only that the DNA has degraded, but that so much of it was, you know, we thought that was DNA, but it was just dust that had been picked up, which is obviously, you know, dead skin of someone walking past, which technically would be someone else's DNA. So yeah, such it's, a it's not as simple as, oh, there's a mosquito. Click. There we are. We've got our dinosaur. Uh, code now. So this is probably more a, a, a bit of a jargon thing uh, explainer. Uh, but when we were looking at the work that you do in the department, there was one word which came up which I didn't instantly know the meaning of. And I wondered if you could explain what the word macroevolutionary means. That is actually a really good question. I mean, I even teach a module called Macroevolutionary Patterns. And yeah, so it's probably a good thing that I explained that's it to people. That's <laughs> where it came from. <laughs> <laughs> so macroevolution, at least, I guess people, some people define it a bit differently. But for me, macroevolution means looking at patterns on a larger scale. And by large scale, I mean both time-wise. So we're talking tens or hundreds of millions of years. And um, geography-wise, so looking at sort of global patterns. So the, what I talked about earlier when I mentioned biogeography. So biogeography basically meaning how, where did species migrate over time? So where did they originate? And then how did they get from, let's say, like alligators who potentially originated in Europe? How did they get to South America, North America, where they live now? And when did they migrate? And so those are macroevolutionary patterns. So looking at scales of evolution, of migration, all of that together, basically, of, over a time frame of about millions or hundreds of millions of years at times. So sort of larger overall patterns in evolution rather than saying, ah, this species evolved from that species. And by doing so, it evolved, let's say, I don't know, an additional claw on the foot. Rather than saying that, you say, oh, this, the, all these 20 species come from this one species that originated there and there and then migrated, migrated over there. And in the course of migration evolution over the 50 million years, you suddenly have this anatomical feature arising. So yeah, sort of the sort of larger scale patterns over time and space. I mean, it's interesting because I think to a, a layperson, one assumes that evolution already takes place over fairly large timescales. But of yeah. course, the size of a timescale is relative. You know, one million years seems like a very long timescale until you're talking about hundreds of million years, at which point it's it's effectively a blip. Uh, from what I'm seeing, your, your academic biography, uh, you, you're originally from Germany, you came over to Oxford for an undergraduate and then you went to Uppsala in Sweden for postgrad and then back to UCL for PhD. Is that roughly correct? Roughly, yes. So my master's was a bit, well, complicated, I think is the right word. So I did my master's with a program called the MEME program, which stands for Master's Program in Evolutionary Bi No, Erasmus Mundus Master's Program in Evolutionary Biology, which we, you know, shortened to MEME. And it's basically this program where you, and which has lots of different applicants from lots of different countries. So you have this huge cohort of diverse students who get to spend each semester. So half, we have half year terms rather than, you know, three terms a year, it's two mm. years, two terms a year and it's semesters. And you spend each semester at a different institution of the partner institutions of the program. And so I spent two semesters in Uppsala in Sweden. Um, where I did one of my master's thesis and I spent one semester in Munich in Germany and I spent one semester in Harvard, 
over in the US for my second master's research. Oh, cool. So, yeah, it's I, a bit... What I, what I was going to ask was whether you would see that there was any uh, difference in the kind of approach for education between the UK and Sweden. So I guess what I can now say is, did you notice any difference between the UK and Sweden and Ivy League US institutions? Yeah, so it was quite interesting having those differences. So Sweden is very... Education is almost like a public good, so stuff like student fees and tuition fees aren't really a thing. Everyone gets mm -hmm. to study what they want if they want to study it, if that sort of makes sense. And people were really like, they were really excited about having international students there. So like I did, for example, I did a Swedish course and I like I learned a little bit of Swedish and I tried to speak like a few sentences of Swedish and, you know, failed horribly as I want to. But uh, yeah, but everyone was still like super excited about it. And to be fair, like in Sweden, they all speak incredible English as well. So like I would like try to like say something in Swedish and they'd be like, immediately switch over to English. And I was like, well, you can try German instead if you want to have some real fun. But, <laughs> you know, <laughs> but yeah, it was, it was very interesting so like i should i should mention that i very much enjoyed my time in oxford and i'm really really lucky that i was sort of one of the last groups of people who got to go to oxford and study when the tuition fees were still low so i don't have as many student loans to pay back because back then eu students also got the home student loan rate you know so under the current climate i would not be doing this i would not be coming to the uk at all i think so um and then you, then you have the comparison with ivy league you know, where the student fees are even higher. Like, I don't even want to know how much money they paid, the program paid for me to spend one semester at Harvard. I, I saw the sum. It was a five-figure sum. I will never forget oh, it. Oh, wow. <laughs> for one yeah. semester. It's absolutely insane. And Jeez. yeah, so like the atmosphere there sort of, it's extremely driven and it's something that I'm not incredibly keen on, if that makes sense. So <laughs> I'm, I'm on the very controversial standpoint that even as an academic who loves their job, I do not want to spend more than eight hours a day doing this job. So I'm one of yeah. those people who actually, I did what I call a nine to five PhD. I did not work weekends or I worked one Saturday and two weeknights in my entire four years of my PhD. Oh my God, that's discipline. Which uh, I am still so, so happy I did. <laughs> and even now I like, I refuse to work weekends or even check emails over the weekends or evenings. But um, I'm, I'm very Did aware you... that obviously this is tied, especially right now, to a position of privilege because obviously people who have children or have care work or have to homeschool kids, they can't work throughout the day. That's clear. So I'm lucky that I'm, you know, mm -hmm. single living alone, able to do that. But aside from that, I try not to get over those like seven and a half, eight work hours a week. And to, for example, to compare that with Harvard in the lab that I was working with. I was one of the last people to come in in the morning, one of the earliest people to leave in the evening in the lab. And I worked nine to ten hours a day. And I was just, and I came in a couple, like half the weekends that I was there as well. And I just remember wow. thinking, this is fun. And it's incredible how much money these people have in their labs for their research. Like a machine breaks and like, oh yeah, this costs $15,000. We just order a new one. It's fine. And I'm like, holy shit. <laughs> and the people were super <laughs> lovely. And I'm still in contact with my master's supervisor from there who was absolutely great. But yeah, I was like, I remember going there for half a year and being like, I don't think I want to do this. So like I was, my, my master's supervisor then told me that if I got the funding, I probably could have stayed on for a PhD there. And I was like, no <laughs> no not happening but um yeah it's like it's absolutely insane how like work becomes life and especially mm. in those especially in the one lab that i was at in harvard which as i said i loved but at the same time i after half a year i was like this is this is not for me you know i'm i'm a person outside 
my job even though I love my job I'd have other things that I love doing and you know yeah gotta keep doing them <laughs> now to carry on on that then so do you think you could tell us a little bit of some of the stuff that you do outside of work because I feel like it will be interesting <laughs> so many things I have too many hobbies that's my biggest complaint <laughs> I so, suspected um, that <laughs> yeah so um I'm a big I'm a big nerd as well so I love I've been uh, cosplaying so making costumes from shows and series for since 2007 so 14 years years now and oh. go to conventions regularly apart from last year which was my first year without a convention for a very long time obviously yeah <laughs> but uh yeah so i do a lot of sewing i do a lot of i do leather working as well so i have a miniature side business where i sell uh dog collars from leather work um, because i really just enjoy working with leather i sew i do lots of embroidery so things like that are quite creative in that manner um mm -hmm. i video game i love gaming <laughs> Yeah. So. Are there any particular cosplay costumes that you've been very proud of? That's a oh. that's a good question. So because I am I'm a perfectionist, so I'm never happy with okay. what I do. I have what I call the post convention slump. I'm really proud of something. I wear it and I see the pictures and I'm happy about them. And then one week later, I will hate them all and will be tempted to delete everything and go, I hate this. This is terrible. You look awful. And then five oh. months later, I look at them again and I'm like, actually, no, this looks quite all right. So um, yeah, no, I'm. I think one of the biggest ones, I do quite a fair bit of Assassin's Creed cosplays. And I did some Assassin's okay. Creed cosplay, I was going to say last year, but then 2020 just doesn't exist in my brain anymore. That's 2019. <laughs> Not <to laughs> anyone, I, yeah. I, I like to participate in uh, competitions and conventions as well. For example, I won the cosplay competition at London Comic Con in 2019 in October. I won wow, best wow. costume there. So um, yeah, that, that was a good one. I was, I'm happy with it. Um, side hustles slowly working pretty cool <laughs> yeah I'm currently working on, on two different ones I'm working on Boromir from Lord of the Rings because yes <laughs> and uh, Eskel which is a side character from Witcher 3 if anyone has played it so this is one of my favourite things about cosplayers is they won't just come out and be like oh we're going to do a character you know, I'm going to be Batman or something it's like no I'm going to be this guy that you see sitting at the corner of the bar in one <laughs> half second scene and yes. that's who I want to be I respect like, it <laughs> they, they will burrow into the, the mythos of a show and an understanding to the same level that a PhD student will burrow into a particular species or evolutionary trait you can see it's... how they overlap you have no idea how many reference shots I have for some of my I literally have folders of like 90 different pictures of the same costume from different angles to recreate it exactly on my laptop so yeah that's so cool though. I've, I've three or four friends who are really into their cosplay I can guess exactly how many <laughs> reference shots you have <laughs> <laughs> oh. oh, I'm so glad we went into that. Who knew? You have such a, you're like a personable trade, so the sound of it. I do a lot um, of things, yes. There was, there was one thing that you mentioned in your spotlight. Now, I want to make sure I absolutely get the, uh, the wording right here, or the correct term. Uh, but it was a particular kind of martial arts, I yes. think, that you had... What does H-E-M-A stand for? Can you tell us a little bit about what that is? So H-E-M-A, which we usually call HEMA for short, is a short for Historical European Martial Arts. And it's basically a bunch of nerds with swords 
that's the very <laughs> most concise description I can give. And it's basically exactly that. So rather than, you know, stand at fencing what you see at the Olympics, it's basically people who go back into old manuscripts from sort of Middle Ages, but also like Renaissance a bit later, and then try to recreate what they see from these sort of ancient fencing instruction manuals and try to translate that into actual fencing. So there's lots of different uh, disciplines in HEMA. So there's longsword, there's stuff like rapier, there's stuff like sight sword and saber and so on and i am with the uh, london historical fencing club who shout out to i don't know if any one of these people are gonna hear this but shout out you guys are awesome i miss you a lot and uh, so yeah we before corona we got together like once a week and basically practice like different sort of stuff i mostly do long sword but i also really enjoy stuff like a sight sword or what's called sword and buckler which is basically you have a one-handed sword and a little shield in the other hand and which is basically just a glorified knuckle duster. That's what we like to call it and fighting with that. So, um, yeah, it's, it's great fun. Like it lets you let off a bit of steam. And most of the people, at least in my club are giant nerds and we're all queer in some ways. So, um, yeah, we're, we're having a great, great time hitting each other with swords. <laughs> Very badass. Um, actually, yeah, the, this is still kind of on the, the hobbies sort of track, but you mentioned just before the podcast that you were involved with Science Show Off a bit. Um, is that what it's called? Have I said that right? I hope so. <laughs> yeah, okay, cool. Um, could you tell us a bit more about how your work um, leads you to kind of do it more of these engagement sort of things and comedy? So I've always liked doing sort of, I want to get on stage and I want to show off and I want to be funny and I want to make people laugh because I love making people laugh. And so that very let, naturally for l- me... Let me put my surprised face on for you. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, yeah, no, I, I, yeah, I just enjoy making people laugh and showing off stuff that I've done. And um, Science Show Off, I, was, I initially got into it because I participated in the three-minute thesis competition at UCL. And I did mm. the... At the I think back in 2014 or 2015 and uh, I won the MAPS faculty round for that so I was the faculty Sick. winner and the, the person who moderated it Steve Cross then got into contact and was like hey you are all really fun the people who participate do you want to there's this thing called science show which you like to participate and it's basically like a comedy club but for scientists and nerds and there's lots of different versions like there's history show off and books show off and so on and um, yeah, so I did a couple of those and I've always had great fun. I did a couple of science shows, things where I basically do a comedic skit, like about up to 10 minutes about science and about being a scientist and so on. And then we have, um, I also did something like called Animal Show Off in the Grant Museum of Zoology, which is associated with UCL, where I talked about spiders for eight minutes and about how awesome they are. So um, yeah, it's a sort of, yeah, comedy mixed with science and trying to like educate people a little bit on both, which is great fun. I haven't done one in a while, but also Corona, so. I mean, the the Earth Sciences Department at UCL, I think is is quite good at doing a lot of public engagement stuff uh, because I know they have the Geobus work that Amy Edgington's been doing. uh, And obviously, as you've mentioned, some of the public engagement work that you've been doing. Yeah, the Geobus is awesome. So shout out to Amy. Um, Amy and I have actually, she reached out to me and we've actually developed some activities about fossils and fossil crocodiles for sort of like school classes together. So and she's been doing absolutely amazing with Geobus. So yeah, I recommend everyone to check it out. Ooh, could you could you some, do a quick 30, uh, 30 second summary of what Geobus is for the people who are listening who don't know? 
<laughs> so GeoBus is basically the outreach project of the Earth Sciences Department at UCL. And they mostly put together activities for teaching, ge bringing geosciences to um, school classes, secondary school, sixth form, and so on. And basically teaching them about Earth Sciences and what different parts there are of Earth Sciences and trying to, yeah, awaken interest in Earth Sciences. And no, usually doing it in person with an actual bus, the GeoBus. But now during Corona, Amy has developed a really wide range of activities that people can do at home with their kids and school classes and for learning so so amongst many of the things that you do um one of the roles that you have is to be the lgbtq rep um for our sciences i believe um why was that something that you felt was important to get involved with and can you tell us a bit more about what it um what it means so yeah at the moment it doesn't entail all that much we sort of found that the there's a lot of effort in the earth sciences department to to work on edi issues equality diversity and inclusion mm -hmm. issues and as part of that we had some people who were really working really hard on like athena swan stuff so like gender equality things to translate it and but we didn't really have any groups for sort of lgbt people so i was like well why not um i'm a very i'm a very open and very out transgender person as if it wasn't obvious from my really high voice still coupled with the name seb <laughs> <laughs> i am a i am an out transgender person i think the probably Earth, at least earth sciences first out transgender lecturer i'm fairly sure um i know there's other trans people working in the maps faculty but i don't think there's anyone in earth sciences and um yeah and so as that i was very happy to sort of start this lgbt network at earth sciences which just gives a sort of safe space for us to discuss issues that might arise about being lgbt in earth sciences because as you all know stem subjects are still not the most welcoming place for lgbt plus people in general and uh yeah, yeah we had we just had our first sort of social meeting right before COVID kicked off and i was planning on doing yeah. social meetings once a term but it's hard to sort of do socials via teams and so on i find so thus far mm -hmm. my activity has been mostly like sending emails around and stuff i mean it's lgbt well we're recording this in february so it's lgbt history month right now um and yeah. there's for example some documents that i want to send around which uh UCL has published recently. We have some new pronoun guidance, for example, for what are what are pronouns, how to respect pronouns, and so on. So I recommend everyone to check that one out on the EDI websites. Um, I, I'm involved with the LGBT equality steering groups, so LESG. So we sort of advise the provost and vice provost on LGBT matters at UCL. And yeah, it's sort of just mostly there to a provide a very visible space for LGBT people to be themselves and also to let LGBT people who might be applying to the department know that we exist and they're welcome here and that there's a space where they can mm. talk about stuff that things maybe don't go as well. So, um, yeah, that's pretty much. Mm. That sounds incredible. I'm so glad you're doing that. It sounds like you're doing some really important work for future mm. generations as well at UCL. So thank you. I, I was just going to add on the end that, you know, if you were talking to a 17-year-old who was looking forward to coming to UCL in September, who was LGBT, what advice could you give them on, you know, good things to do when they uh, join up at UCL, good organisations to join? Obviously, if they're in Earth Sciences, they should speak to you as the, the LGBTQ rep for the department. But if they're somewhere else in UCL, are there any kind of general guidelines you could give for, you know, this is something that, that will help you? I think... 
most importantly, always finding peers. So the student union has really been kicking up their equality work recently as well, which is absolutely fantastic. So there's LGBT groups. There's even a trans rep now, I think, again, was the position yeah. was vacant yeah. for a while. And so, which is really, really awesome. So yeah, try and like, even if you're really shy, try and maybe go to like one or two of the socials that they do, one or two of the events, because it's, it can't be underestimated just like how important it is to be amongst people who are like you, if that makes sense. So um, yeah, do do that. And at the same time, it's like UCL is a very big place and it has a lot of people with different views and sometimes views that might not be as welcoming that exists at this university to say it very nicely. And do not get discouraged by that because there's also a lot of people working towards inclusion at the same time on the smaller scale. So even if some of the very public things that you hear and say might not always be as positive, there are people working on changing that and there are a lot of people really welcoming. So I have had, I've been really lucky in the department. So at least to my face, I haven't had any bad interactions from my department. Outside the department, UCL, yes, I've had a couple of not so nice interactions, but in the department, people have been trying very hard. They don't always get it right, which is natural, I think. Um, but most of the time they at least try very hard and, uh, yeah, they're trying to be very supportive. So I have to uh, add to that. I came out as trans about two thirds throughout my PhD. So like the entire department had to learn with me basically how to accommodate a trans person. And there's still things like, for example, my email address on the website pay on the department website still is my old name, not my current names, things like that. So things are just, uh, you know, was, things I are slow to change. <laughs> I was about to say just when I searched for your uh, your thing, it comes up oh. with your dead named email account. Yeah, it was like does, <laughs> I was going to mention that, but then I thought I'm pretty sure Seb's probably aware of that. I'm, I'm guessing yeah. <laughs> Seb probably doesn't need me telling them. Okay. So yeah. yeah, but yeah, don't They've don't don't give up. It's okay. Then. There's tons of people who like who will be there for you. You'll meet so many awesome people, and yeah. So I think one of the most important or most wonderful things I've had in earth sciences also. Um, I teach uh, two different modules in earth sciences and every single time before I even start teaching, I usually send out an email saying, by the way, my pronouns are they or he, uh, I'm transgender. If you have any questions, feel free to ask me, but just so that you know in advance. So basically I come out every year to something like 60, 70 students in advance oh, without wow. having met them, which is absolutely terrifying. But at the same time, I've yeah, never had any sort of face-to-face -face bad interactions yet. <laughs> Cross and knock on wood. <laughs> but um, yeah, I've had, in, in contrast, I've had people come up to me and say like, hey, my friend is non-binary and they're studying in biosciences. And I told them that we have a non-binary slash trans lecturer and they got so excited because they didn't even know like <laughs> other STEM people were there who did that. So like, yeah, just like yeah. that visibility can be really exhausting, but it's also really cool because uh, yeah, I promise you there are more of us than you think they are. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, absolutely. No, I think that's part of the thing that just makes me feel really hopeful that even just by being and especially by being a lecturer, that's making a huge difference to the students who are who are able to be taught by you. So no, that's no small feat at all. Important to mention as well, because so much of the stuff you've brought up has been really, really important. And um, yeah, I just want to kind of signpost that for me at least the UCL student wellbeing services has been really helpful when my mental health was suffering a lot so I hope that if anyone listening is also having difficulties especially with sort of gender identity and sexuality all, all kinds of things they they have 
yeah, they have some really good resources. Um, and you've also signposted some really good ones too. So thank you. Absolutely. And yeah, go get a therapist. That's if I could tell 23 yes. year old Seb <laughs> one thing, it would be go get a therapist. Boy, do it yesterday. My God. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah oh, totally we could all do with some i think it just helps everyone well thank you very much i think that's a really positive note to end on um so thank you all for listening thank you again to dr go for uh, their time today thank you so much Sarah, for talking to us that's been really really lovely and um i hope that you have a good rest of the day thank you so much well lots of thanks to both of you as well i had a really great time so yeah <laughs> We'll be back next month with the next episode of High Interviews. Thanks very much. UCR Minds brings together the knowledge, insights and ideas of our community through a wide range of events and activities that are open to everyone.